When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Hands on History with Heather. Hello, everyone. This is Heather Darcy with the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. This is the Hands on History segment where we talk to different people who do work and interact with history as part of their jobs. I'm delighted to be joined by Caroline Pantling this morning, who is the head of heritage for the Scouts in the United Kingdom. Good morning, or good afternoon to you, I should say. Yeah, three o'clock here. Yeah, lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you too. So tell us a little bit of the just general background of the Scouts. So the origins of the Scouts um, as a movement go back to 1907 when Robert Baden-Powell, who um, by this point had been a career soldier uh, for many years and had become a hero of the British Empire, um, had come back from home from the Boer War and he had written a small training manual for use by soldiers called Aids to Scouting. And it was basically, it was a little pocket-sized red book, um, which could fit in the top of top pocket of your tunic. So it's really like a little hands-on guide. And it was partly to, it was to provide new ways of training soldiers because the, the level of training he didn't feel was very good, but it provided a lot of sort of more interactive rather than didactic training things, so a lot more sort of games and practical activities rather than lectures, which tended to be quite a lot of training. And when he came back from the Boer War, he found that actually this book had reached uh, an unknown audience and it was being used by youth groups like the Boys Brigade, YMCA, school groups, church groups, as fun in, um, outdoor activities uh, for young people. And over the next few years, he was convinced by his friend who had started the Boys Brigade and a publisher who he met uh, called Arthur Pearson, that actually there was something in this and he could change what he'd written from a military point of view, take away a lot of military elements and replace it with stories of sort of frontiersmen and explorers, sort of boys' own heroes, and make it into a training scheme he's initially thought just for boys. And so he, in 1907, had got all of these ideas. He'd sort of drafted out a lot of the book and he ran a pilot camp or experimental camp on Brancy Island, which is a small island in Poole Harbour on the south coast of England. And he invited 10 boys from local boys brigade units. Um, these were um, boys aged between sort of 12 and 16. The school leaving age in the UK at that point was 12. So quite a lot of them would have left school. And then he invited 10 boys from what we call public schools, which is confusing, I know, to Americans, because that's what you call um, your state funded schools. But public schools in the UK are the fee paying expensive schools like Eton and Harrow and those sorts of things. Just for a bit of context, I believe that Prince William and Prince Harry both attended Eton. Yes. Yes. So that sort of level of public, that is what we call public schools, confusingly. (laughs) And the Boys Brigade, was that a precursor to the Boy Scouts? 
Yeah, well, so it's it's a separate organisation and the Boys Brigade um, is still running today, um, but it was another youth scheme. Um, it was church related. Um, it was particularly popular in Scotland and it, so it had quite a strong religious ethos, Christian religious ethos to it, but it also had quite a militaristic element to it, quite a lot of parading and drill, but it was something that Baden-Powell was quite interested in. And he'd been, he'd gone and inspected rallies in his sort of role as national hero. General Baden-Powell is going to come and look at our Boy Scout unit, come and do these things. So he had got a little bit of experience and understanding of that. But what he wanted was to create a scheme that provided young people with the skills to be innovative and think off their own back, rather than being what he called automatons who just followed orders. Um, that's what the difference he saw in sort of the traditional army cadet um, scheme compared with the scouts was that it was creating people who were potentially leaders, team workers, um, who could think for themselves and problem solve and things like that. And I just wanted to make one more comment for our American friends. There's the Boer War, which took place, I believe, in what is now South Africa. And yes, that, yes. Was, that was a pretty serious and gruesome war. So that's the, the war from which he came home. And yes, scouts. Okay. or excuse me, the, the scouting program. How many scouting organizations are there across the world? So I think there's only about five countries in the world who don't have scouting organizations. And we reckon there's about 57 million scouts around the world. Um, so yeah, it's amazing that it went from those 20 boys of different backgrounds brought together for this experiment to see if it could possibly work to 57 million young people across the world now. So it's phenomenal, really, the growth it saw. How did you come to work for the Scouts? Yeah, so um, the Scouts has had a heritage collection for a long time, and I'll tell you a little bit about the foundations of that later. But how I came to work for the Scouts sort of goes back to how I got into heritage in the first place. It's a little bit of a round circle. Um, when I was 14 to 18, I volunteered through Girl Guiding, which is what's Girl Scouts in America. And I did what they call the Young Leaders Programme, and which was volunteering with the younger, the younger age group. And I became really interested in how young people learn outside the classroom. And um, that sort of led into me doing a degree in educational studies at York. But I always knew I didn't want to be a teacher. My mum's a teacher. I'd gone and helped out my mum's classroom and I just didn't feel that was for me, but was equally panicking. Third year of my degree and I was having that wobble. Oh, my gosh, real life starts soon and I better work out what it is I want to do. And really, I went and had a bit of a panic at the career service. <laughs> and they were saying, I was saying the things I love and I love history. Always been very passionate about that. I'd done quite a few history modules around the history of education, but also the sort of sociology side of it and the theory of education. And they basically said, well, there's a few things coming up, but one you might be interested in is York Museum Service. Various people who work for there are coming to talk to students. Um, and we've got someone who does the role of education officer. And I was like, Mm, this sounds interesting so went to watch this talk and by the end of it I just went up to her and I was like I want to be you how do I get to be you <laughs> and at that point certainly in the UK the route was quite academic to get into museum work and there was a lot of pressure to have a master's level degree so I went and did a master's in uh, heritage education and interpretation and then I've worked at various organizations and started off in learning, learning and engagement, particularly informal learning, engaging with families and community groups. Started working more on exhibitions and interpretation, worked on some major redevelopment projects. 
and when the job at the scouts came up I was just coming to the end of a of a fixed term contract on a big project and just thought I started this journey back in Girl Guiding which is our sister organization and um, this sounds like something that speaks to me so that's sort of how how I came to be at the scouts it's sort of I feel like I've come full circle because now I also volunteer as a cub leader and we have young leaders coming out to help with our cubs so I feel like I could be setting them on a similar journey and cubs are children that are boys that are about five and girls and girls okay what's the age range for cubs uh cubs are uh eight to ten and a half year olds so um yeah we have um uh, all of scouting in the UK is completely co-educational, has been since 1992. So yeah, we have, last year we launched Squirrel Scouts, which is just the cutest thing, uh, there for our four to six-year-olds. And that was particularly uh, targeting areas, um, young people in areas in, of the UK that might need extra support, because if that early intervention um, and skills development at the earliest possible stage is really helpful. But it's you know, we've now had opened 600 squirrel drays in uh, the last not quite a year. So it's, it's going phenomenally. And then we have beaver scouts who are six to eight cubs, eight to ten and a half scouts, ten and a half to 14, explorer scouts, 14 to 18 and network scouts are 18 to 25. Ours are a little bit different and I'm going to get it all wrong. But I think <laughs> so I think the you have tiger cub maybe wolf cub and then you become a buffalo scout and then there might be some other beasts in there before you become an eagle scout but eagle scout is is the highest that you go yeah so eagle scout i think is the is an award you a level of award you work to which is the equivalent in the uk to um what is the queen scout award so that's the top award you can earn as a young person in uk scouting and i believe the eagle scout is the equivalent in the USA but yeah I think it's organized a little bit differently as I understand it in America you go up um, when you go up your year level up through your grades you go up through your different levels of scouting whereas we have multiple um, year groups in a section together so you'll have an eight-year-old in the same group as a ten and a half year old um, and they're organized into little groups called sixes and the older ones are leaders within those little groups. So it's giving them an early chance at leadership, which some of them grasp with a lot of enthusiasm. <laughs> what are your responsibilities as the head of heritage? So we have a heritage collection that charts the birth of the scouts um, from Brancy Island through to the present day, but also um, quite a lot of material relating to Baden-Powell's uh, family life and childhood and we the oldest thing we have in the collection is a um, mortgage deed from about 1700 for the property that the headquarters is based at so we think we have about a quarter of a million items in our collection and that includes the official business archive of the association as well it's been accumulated since 1918 um, at sort of the the collection side of it so when in 1918, it was 10 years since Baden-Powell had launched his book, Scouting for Boys. And he basically did a call out saying, if anyone can help us tell the story of, sort of the first 10 years of scouts, you know, sort of mementos, photographs, stories of interesting incidents, send them to headquarters and people haven't stopped sending them. <laughs> and we're very much involved in contemporary collecting. So the, what's happening now is the heritage of the future. So, as I mentioned, we've been collecting, you know, launched a new section of Squirrel Scouts. So we've doing a lot of collecting around the launch of that, but also things like how Scouts has responded um, 
during the COVID pandemic, the different activities, how the movement has adapted, uh, particularly how our leaders have helped out in the community over that time. So it's, it, it's looking after the historic stuff, but also recognising what we're doing today will be the history of the future, um, making sure that we collect those stories as we go along. And then we're based um, in a 108 acre site, um, which has a um, two grade two listed buildings. A grade two listing is something that's presented by Historic England to show the level of importance of a historic building. Has it got unique features? Is it representative of the local area? And we have a beautiful um, Georgian building called the White House on the estate and a small um, farmhouse, which, part of which we think dates back to the 1600s. And then a lot of statues and monuments and sculptures that have been presented by different scouts around the world, but also some of them which predate the scouts being at, at this site at Gilwell Park um, and talk about the early history of the site as well. So it's quite a broad remit. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you are, and you are the overseer then of all that? Yeah, so my team look after that. So as myself, um, I have three colleagues, um, two of them work directly with the collection, um, trying to work out what we've got. Is it being looked after in the best way? Um, we get offered a lot of uh, donations. So they um, work with our donors to say whether or not we'd like things and look after our loans to other organisations as well. And then we have another colleague who leads our tours and talks and also helps researchers because we get quite a lot of people who are either researching maybe the history of their scout group or scouts are so interwoven in the social history um, of different times, whether it's, you know, scouts helping out with um, during the Blitz or we've um scouts were involved in running the austerity olympics just after the second world war there's so many different ways into the story that actually we get researchers who don't necessarily know anything about scouting but have found a link with their topic what's a day of work like for you varied <laughs> so um it can be so at the moment i'm working on a display about the history of adventure and why did baden powell think adventure was the a good tool for teaching these skills that he felt young people should have. Um, so that story is starting from sort of his childhood, um, the Brownsea Island camp, as I mentioned, um, the early days of international travel and how scouting was um, spreading around the globe um, and scouts making connections with each other, going to visit through to what you know, we've got 4,000 scouts in the UK at the moment who are preparing to go to Korea for the next World Scout Jamboree, which is held next year. So at the moment, they're just in their process. They've been selected and um, they're going through a process of sort of fundraising to pay to get there. So it's, yeah, it's a, that's curating that exhibition at the moment. We're also doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes, which people don't necessarily think of. They look at the sort of the exhibitions or the historic house you're going around, but the stuff that goes on behind the scenes. So we're looking at expanding our collection stores because our collection stores are now too small and we need to future-proof ourselves for more collecting in the future um, and updating our database. So there's quite a bit of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that maybe the public aren't aware of. When you think of working in a heritage setting, you might think of the curator or your front of house people that you meet on a visit. Is the property open to the public? So you can um, come and visit. We advise um, to contact first. Um, so you can contact us at heritage.scouts.org.uk and we have a heritage trail that we've just put in. So that's a big project that we started working on during lockdowns. 
And um, so we now have 29 heritage panels which lead visitors on a tour around, around the site and take in some of the historic highlights and it, which go from things like statues and sculptures. So we have a Maori carved arch that was gifted by New Zealand scouts just after the Second World War. They had come to France for the first peace jamboree, World, World Scout jamboree after the Second World War. And then they came to Gilwell because they'd come a long way. So they might as well stay in Europe and do a bit of exploring whilst they're here. And they presented this gate uh, to Gilwell whilst we're there. Uh, we have several gifts from Boy Scouts of America. So we have a buffalo sculpture because the highest level of award that adult leaders in American Scouts can get is a silver buffalo. And they presented the first silver buffalo to Baden-Powell in 1926, along with this sculpture. And we've actually used that sculpture to create a little character for our younger visitors. Uh, so you can follow Buddy the Buffalo on a little tour um, and just take in 10 of the top highlights if you're a younger visitor who wants a shorter route. But then the trail also takes in some of Gilwell's non-scouting stories. So we've got, um, during the Second World War, the site was requisitioned for use by the military because it's um, ideally placed to defend the, the, an area of London called Enfield, which was a huge um, armaments and munitions manufactory area, but very easy to find if you're the Luftwaffe. So there were anti-aircraft guns placed at Gilwell because it's on a hill overlooking this area. And we have, so we have one of the, um, the remaining gun emplacements of that. So that's an interesting story to tell about its importance as a location. But also we have some items left from some of the Georgian families who lived um, at Gilwell Park. So we have, um, there was a family who lived there called the Chinneries. They moved in in the late 1700s. Um, Margaret and William were the, the parents um, with their three children, um, Caroline and George, who were twins, and their little boy, Walter. And they used to host the most amazing society parties, sort of Bridgerton style, sort of lots of people promenading and showing off their finery, having these wonderful country house parties. King George III visited, his son, the Duke of Cambridge, uh, visited lots of artists and things. No one was quite sure how they were funding this. And that's where the story gets a bit interesting because um, turned out William Chinnery worked for the Treasury and was embezzling money quite freely to pay for this lifestyle. During this time, they sadly lost one of their children, Walter, and we have his memorial urn is at Gilwell Park. And then it turned out uh, it, he got discovered, his, uh, his thievery got discovered, and he had to do an emergency dash out of the country because this would have been treason and he would have been executed, uh, leaving poor old Margaret to pick up the pieces. Um, and during this time, her daughter Caroline also became ill and sadly died. So two of her children have got memorials at the site. And she wrote this very poignant letter about um, having to leave this beautiful home, this sort of earthly paradise, um, where two of my children's memorials are there. I daily dress them with flowers and I hope, you know, who will look after them in the future. So I hope Margaret is happy that we are still looking after her children's memorials 200 years later. So there's some quite um, interesting back history to the site as well. And where is Gilwell Park? So Gilwell Park is right on the edge of the border between North East London and Essex. Um, so it's on the edge of the Royal Hunting Forest. So it was a medieval Royal Hunting Forest. Um, it would have been a very wealthy area from about the 1200s to um, the 1530s because it was very close to Waltham Abbey. 
one of the most important and richest abbeys in the country until the Reformation. Um, and the court would regularly come out to Epping Forest for hunting parties. Um, and in fact, just up the road, we have um, an interesting relic of that. It's called Queen Elizabeth's Hunting Lodge, but actually it was built for Henry VIII. So this is when Henry had got a little bit more portly and uh, slightly less fit to be able to be dashing around the countryside on a horse. And so they had these various grandstands is probably the best way to describe it built. And then he and his uh, gentlemen would be standing there ready with their bows and arrows and herds of deer would be sort of chased down the plain ready for the gentlemen of the court to uh, shoot at. Um, and the um, so it was sort of, yeah, basically like an open uh, open sided grandstand. Um, it's now been filled in. It now looks like more like a, just a white tower. But so, yeah, you can sort of see that there was a lot of wealth in the area. So it was it was an interesting site. And that's why it's got this sort of this long history. We know there's a there's medieval manor going back there to at least 1400. So it's an interesting area with a lot of history. But yeah, right, right, northeast London, just inside the M25 for those in the UK who can envisage that. Caroline, what are some ways that people could become involved in heritage? I think there's lots of different ways, and I think it's it's definitely changing. So there was always a very traditional view in the UK that you needed. Uh, at least one degree, if not a postgraduate degree. I'm delighted that I think that is changing because it really puts barriers in the way of um, people becoming involved. So I think early interest and volunteering is um, useful, making yourself aware, but also think about what are transferable skills from other areas. So like I was saying, I was a young leader with Girl Guiding. So when I started as an education officer, I had that sense of how to manage a group of young people and communicate and do those sort of things. So even though that wasn't in a heritage setting, it was transferable. And I've said this to people when applying for sort of entry level jobs relating to collections. You know, if you've worked in retail and you've done stock takes, it's not that different. So actually don't despair if you've not necessarily got that experience in heritage. Because you can say, yeah, do lots of volunteering, but for a lot of people, they need to work. You know, there's a financial barrier there. So um, use those experiences that you can get and see how they are relevant to heritage. And the other thing would be, if you are looking for experience, go to, don't discount, get working at small, asking for a smaller museum. So when I go to museum fairs for students who are looking for work placements through their courses, you always see huge queues at the big national museums, the British Museum, the VNA. But actually, if you go there, you're probably going to work in one area. And yes, you will get the prestige of saying, yes, I worked at VNA. But actually, if you go to a smaller museum service, you're much more likely to get a wider range of experience, which will set you up in a good place for the future. So you might get a chance to do some learning. You might get a bit chance to do some cataloging, a bit of marketing. You know, there's lots of, I think people assume that they need to go big. Actually, if you go for a smaller service, smaller museum, you're more likely to get a more diverse range of experience. How can people become involved with their local scouting organization? So in the UK, um, you go to scouts.org.uk and um, there's a thick tab at the top of the website saying join. So whether you're a young person and then as opposed um, or an, uh, wanting to someone wanting to volunteer and we are crying out for volunteers because we have 90,000 young people on our waiting lists. So we desperately need more adult volunteers. Um, who can um, support getting those young people actually having places in scouting. And then there's a postcode 
find us or it'll then show you your closest um, groups and give you the contact details of the people to get in contact with. And don't worry if you've never been camping, you've never lit a campfire, there's always something that you can do and it doesn't always have to be every Tuesday night helping out with cups like I do. You know, it can be actually a lot of groups might need a treasurer. They might need someone maybe to help with catering on camps. We have one volunteer who just does our catering for us when we go camping, which is brilliant. Um, you might need someone who's a secretary um, or you, you might have a specialist skill that you might be able to help out once a term with that particular thing. So there's lots of different ways in. Um, and I think everyone's got something that they can offer, which would be really helpful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Again, this is Heather Darcy with Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. This is the hands-on history segment where we talk to people who have jobs actually interacting with history. And I am joined by Caroline Pantling of the Head of Heritage with the Scouts in the United Kingdom. So thank you so much for coming today and talking to us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.